you pray with me? God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, though the mountains shake and the waters tremble at the swelling, Lord, when every circumstance of our life seems unstable, you are the rock of ages. And you hide us in that rock, the rock that is Christ. So as we come again to your word, the thing that we just sung just resonated with me, helpless come to you for grace. And in so many ways, Lord, I, I feel inadequate, I feel helpless. I know we often feel that way, but you are the rock on which we stand. And so we pray and we cry out to you today that you would be that for us, that you would be the rock that we stand on. Be with us now as we look to your word, Lord. Open our eyes, open our understanding so that we are changed and transformed through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back for week two in John 11. And I don't even feel like I have much to say after the songs that we just sung. That was so good. It's so good to worship together, and it just fit so well with this morning. I'm just very thankful for that time. But I'm going to preach anyways, because <laughs> here we are. <clears throat> so if you want, you can turn to John 11. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to review quickly where we were last week, in case you weren't here. So last week, we started in John 11 in a sermon called The Nature of God's Love, and we looked at the account of Jesus hearing this news about his friend Lazarus. His friend Lazarus has passed away, and he hears the news, and we saw that the nature of God's love is, is very difficult sometimes for us to understand, but that God always does what is ultimately best for us. Sometimes it's a matter of our perspective. It doesn't always seem like that's something that's good for us, but we can have confidence that God is always working for our good. That's what we looked at last week. So we're going to continue in the narrative today. We're going to look at John 11 starting in verse 17 through 44. I'm going to break it up into three sections. So if you're a note taker and you kind of want to follow along, there's space on the back of your bulletin to do that. And probably in your Bible, the paragraph divisions are already there. I'm going to follow those. So we're going to look at 17 through 27, 28 to 37, and then 38 to 44. So let's begin by reading verse 17 through 27. If you're in John 11, please follow along. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. As we move through this passage of John 11 today, we're going to see three different instances where the love of Jesus, the love that he has for this family, is called into question. And each time he responds with a very appropriate response. First, we have Martha, who runs out to meet Jesus as he is coming to Bethany. And I just thought this was an interesting uh, parallel between, remember last week we talked a little bit about Luke 10 and the account of Jesus being at Martha and Mary's house. And just their character is in consistency here. There's a, there's a consistency between these two things. Martha runs out. She's, she's coming out and Mary is sitting in the house. In the other account, Martha's running around doing stuff. Mary's just sitting there. Maybe not very significant. I just thought it shows me a little continuity between these accounts. This is kind of a character thing for them. So Martha runs out and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, she's saying, I thought you loved us. And that's what the scripture said, right? We saw last week, Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. It's a very strange way for him to show his love for them, isn't it? Martha's hurting. She's confused. She's asking, why weren't you there? She's questioning the love that Jesus had for this family. And I just think it's so great and so amazing. Jesus doesn't just immediately rebuke her, right? She comes to Jesus and he doesn't tell her, how dare you question me? Don't you know who I am? Of course she knows who he is. She just said that. You see, our Savior knows us. He understands our grief. He knows the sorrow that we bring to him when we're hurting and he has grace for that. He has grace for you to come to him there. He will not quench a smoldering flax, as the Old Testament says, or break a bruised reed. Psalm 147 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 103, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to all those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Jesus knew what to do with Martha. He knows what to do with you and with me when we come to him with our hurt and with our pain. He is, as Isaiah said, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief so that we can read in the book of Hebrews that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has endured trial as we have yet without sin. And we can come to him with confidence. I just thought that was really good. That really, that really spoke to me this week as I just read through this, thought about what was going on. I thought, what a Savior. What a Savior that we have, that we can come to him, we can bring these things to him. So now, how does Jesus answer this objection or this statement from Martha? Lord, you loved us, but why didn't you come? If you would have just been here, this would not have happened. Remember, they didn't know the end of the story. We said that last week. They didn't, they didn't know that this was the plan. They just knew that their brother had died and they were in grief. We get the answer to this in what Jesus tells her in verse 4, early in the chapter, which we saw last week. Jesus said that the purpose of this illness was not to kill Lazarus, but to glorify God. That was the purpose. So the reason why Jesus didn't come was so that he would be glorified in the circumstance. And we talked about the nature of God's love being that he values his glory above our physical comfort. And one thing that we don't have time to get into, and I, I wish we did, was just to answer the question, 
how does God glorifying himself serve us for our good? That's a good question. We need to ask that question. And if anyone wants to buy me coffee, I would gladly share my thoughts with you. But we don't have time for that today. We're going to keep looking through our text. So look at what Jesus tells Martha in verse 23. She voices this question. She says, you know, why weren't you here? If you would have been here, it would have been different. So this is what he says. Your brother will rise again. And Martha answers him by saying, yes, I I know he'll rise again on, on the last day. Meaning, she believed that when all is said and done, her brother would be raised from the dead, along with all those who have trusted the promises of God and put their faith in his redemptive work through Christ. And this also was really interesting to me because... At this time, what did Martha have access to? The Old Testament scriptures. New Testament was still being lived out and recorded at the time. And it's just interesting because it shows me that the Old Testament saints did have an understanding of eternal life. Sometimes people wonder, do you think they really understood what was going on, that life after death was up? Because that was accomplished through Christ, right? It's his resurrection that provides us hope and confidence, just like we're going to see, just like we read about earlier. It's all through Christ. And so remember last week I told you we were going to come back to a word in chapter 11, this word awaken, which I thought was an interesting choice that Jesus uses. In verse 11 he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Jesus does not waste his words. He weighs every word that he says, and there is design to everything that he says. So I thought there might be significance, so I did a little poking around, and here's what I found. The This word awaken appears several times in the Old Testament in direct reference to resurrection. You can write these down, take a look at them later. In their context, this is what they're talking about. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Direct reference of the psalmist to the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And again in Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. My point with this is that Martha, in saying what she does in verse 24 of John 11, is demonstrating what many of the Old Testament saints knew, that there would be a bodily resurrection from the dead at the end of time. And therefore, it is no accident that Jesus uses this word in verse 11, I go to awaken Lazarus. So Martha says, I know that he'll rise again on the last day. And Jesus replies with one of the great I am statements, the Gospel of John. He tells her, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. You are right, your brother will rise again but you're missing a big component here, and it's me. Your brother will rise again because of me. There will be a resurrection, but it's going to happen because of what Jesus does. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. We read the last part of this passage. I want to read from the first part, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Everything hinges on the fact that Christ is raised from the dead, providing resurrection power to everyone who believes in him. 
Jesus tells this to Martha. He tells her that he is the resurrection. He is the life. And yes, Lazarus will be raised on the last day, but to prove to you who I am, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead right now as a demonstration of his power and a foretaste of what is to come for everyone who trusts in him. And we're going to look a little bit later at what that means for us. There's an immediate application, obviously, for Lazarus, and there's an application for us. But for now, let's move on in our text and read the next section together, starting in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, same thing Martha had said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Well, in this section of our text, we see the second and third instances of Jesus' love being called into question. First with Mary and then with the Jews who were with Mary. So Martha had come out to meet Jesus and after talking with him, goes back into the house and gets Mary and tells her that Jesus wants to see her. And so when she comes out, she says the same thing that Martha had said. She intimates that if Christ would have been there, things would have gone a lot differently, right? Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Martha said this, Jesus responded with words of truth. When Mary says this, Jesus responds with emotion. Verse 33, when Jesus heard her weeping and the Jews that had come with her weeping also, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And now we come to the section of John 11 that requires a bit of interpretation. I'm just going to tell you what I think verse 33 is saying and you compare it to the scriptures and see if you don't agree. Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw Mary and the Jews who were with her weeping, he was moved in his spirit and deeply troubled. So we have these two verbs that are translated deeply moved and greatly troubled. So what do you think that means? Greatly troubled. Many people will read this passage and assume that it means that Jesus was overcome with emotion and compassion because of his great love for Lazarus. That he loved him and felt the hurt of losing his friend and was showing his empathy and compassion. And while empathy and compassion are certainly traits of our Savior, as we read earlier from those Old Testament texts, I don't think that's what's going on here. Almost all of the versions translate this Greek word terazzo as troubled. ESV, CSB, New King James, NIV, all of them have this word as troubled. 
So I did a search to see where and how this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, just to give me some context for what's going on here in John. I found 23 different times in the New Testament where this word is used, eight of them right here in John. So I just want to briefly go through these in John just to give us the context for what's going on here. So hang with me. It'll be worth it in the end. Back in chapter 5, you remember the account of the healing of the man by the pool of Siloam. Same word is used in verse 4 of chapter 5. For an angel went down at a certain time to the pool and terazzo, stirred up the water, agitated, moved it around. Same thing about a little bit later in chapter 5 in the same account referring to the same thing with the waters of the pool. The word occurs twice in our text here in chapter 11. In verse 33, we're going to see it again in 38. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, terazzo. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Later on in John chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, truly, one of you is going to betray me. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. Not as the world gives you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. So using these verses as a little bit of a help for our context, it wouldn't make sense for any of these other verses if this means compassion or empathy or moved with emotion. We wouldn't say, let not your hearts be compassioned, believe in God, believe also in me. It doesn't make sense. We've got to use the word the same way as he used other places. And so, here's what I think is going on. When Jesus sees Mary and the Jews weeping, he is troubled agitated, disquieted in his spirit. Here's a couple options. Some people think that Jesus is angry at death itself. He's troubled and upset that death has reigned from Adam until now and he is indignant towards death and all of its effects. I don't think that's what it is because he planned the death. He knew what he was doing with Lazarus. He wasn't helpless. He wasn't angry at death as if there was nothing he could have done, but, oh, death got Lazarus, and I'm so upset about that. He's God. He's not just a man. So I don't think he's upset at death itself. I think this starts back in 21 with verse Martha. With, with verse Martha. With Martha in verse 21. She questions his love for them, and again, Mary says the same thing. If you would have just been here, this wouldn't have happened. And now the crowds are going to do the same thing a little later. He's not troubled because Lazarus died. He knows what he's doing with Lazarus. This is an illustration of his power and his glory and that of the fathers. You read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the second time you read it, you don't cry when Aslan dies because you know he's coming back. And in the same way here, Jesus is weeping, not because Lazarus is dead and there was nothing he could have done about it. He's weeping because these people whom he loved didn't get it. He loved Lazarus. We read that last week. And Martha and Mary. And they couldn't see past the immediate circumstance to see what was really going on. And that troubled him in his soul. He loved them. He knew what was ultimately best for them, and they couldn't see it. 
I think this is illustrated even more in, in 36 on. The Jews who were with Mary saw Jesus weeping, and now they're the ones who call his love into question. Look at verse 36 and 37 with me. So the Jews said, See how he loved him after Jesus weeps? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Like, what's going on? He did all these other things. What's going on here? They didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus is doing, but he's going to make it explicit for them in the following part of the text. So now we get to the climax, the pinnacle, the point where Jesus takes action. Let's read the last part of this text together. Starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, always the practical one, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been in there for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The Jews who were with Mary call Jesus' love into question. We read the same thing in verse 38 as we did in 33, that Jesus was greatly troubled at what they had said. Right? You see that right there. The Jews said, could not those, he who opened the eyes of the blind, have done anything about this, this man dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again. I think those two are directly tied. Jesus hears this. He's deeply moved again. And I think it should be noted that the people did not drive Jesus to action here. They did not exasperate him to the point where he got frustrated and lost his cool and finally said, okay, just to silence you guys, I'm going to go and prove to you and, and lay, raise Lazarus from the dead. That's not what's happening. Jesus knew all along his plan for Lazarus and he does not take orders from the crowd. He is acting in accordance with the will of his Father. The sovereign plan of Jesus all along to raise Lazarus. So Jesus comes to the tomb. He tells them to move the stone away that is covering the mouth of the tomb. And Martha rightly protests that he's been in there for four days and there'd be a horrible stank in there. And she doesn't say this as a perception upon the stone actually being moved. She concludes this knowing how long Lazarus had been in there. And here's why this is important. Why, why does John include this little detail? You've you got to do that. As you're reading through the text, I hope you're constantly asking questions. Why is this in here? Why include this detail? And then start digging around and find the answers. Here's what I think. I think it was partially to show that Lazarus was really dead. I mean, he, he was really dead. This is part of the reason I assume that Jesus didn't come until this point as well. This wasn't a hoax that the family had 
kind of made up to drum up some more business for Jesus. He was really dead. He'd been in there for four days, and everybody around them knew it. This was not a made-up thing. It was to prove that this was authentic. He was really dead. And the other thing why Martha would have protested at this was because the Jews had some stipulations around how to handle the body of someone who had passed away. And tradition said that after three days, a person who had died was not to be seen. It just it wasn't proper Jewish etiquette or tradition that you would see a body after three days. This is how the saying went from their traditions. For three days, the soul goes to the grave, thinking the body may return. But when it sees the figure of the face changed, it goes away and leaves it. See, the Jews didn't embalm the body. They just buried him, put him in the tomb. So decay set in a lot faster than, obviously, if you had embalmed. So they do not allow anyone to see the dead or someone who has been killed after three days in the Jewish tradition because the countenances changed and they were grotesque and disfigured. And that's why Martha's protesting, saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You roll the stone away, it's not going to be pretty in there. Even after Jesus told her, I'm going to raise your brother from the dead. He's going to rise again. They're still not quite catching it in there. So now we come to it. And Jesus, standing in front of the open tomb, lifts his eyes to the Father and prays to him. And here's the question. Did Jesus have to pray to the Father in order to do this miracle? No. He was the Son of God. He possessed all the power of the triune God. You remember at his arrest in the garden, he said he could have called down legions of angels right there to interrupt the whole thing. He has power. But the reason he prays to the Father is made known right in the text. Look at verse 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. His point is that so people would know the Father sent me. I'm doing this in accordance with the will of my Father. Now, there's one point of application that I want to pull out of this prayer before we keep moving on in our text. It's what verse 41 says that I just read. Father, Jesus says, Thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. This is definitely not the main point of the text, but I think it warrants a couple comments. The fact that God the Father always hears the prayers of His Son. Always. And this is affirmed to me in our application from Romans 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. He's praying for us. So that's the question. What is Jesus doing right now? We know what he did in history past. We know what he's doing when he comes back. What's he doing right now? He's praying for you and for your faith and for me and for my faith. And the confidence and the comfort that we can have from this is that God always hears his son's prayers. Always. There's never a time when Jesus brings something to the Father and God does not answer according to his will. So what's the implication for us? When Jesus prays to the Father, he always hears him. Now add this in. Because of what Christ did and through faith, we 
as believers have been adopted into the family of God and have become sons, heirs with Christ. You know where I'm going with this? When you pray, the Father hears you because of Christ. Jesus says right here in John 11, I know that the Father always hears me. You and I know that by faith we are in the family of God, adopted into His family, co-heirs with Christ. Therefore, when you pray, God hears you. We can say amen and be done right there. That is amazing. And it's because of Christ and what He purchased for us. So he prays outside the tomb. And when he had prayed, he lifted up his voice. Literally, he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had been dead for four days obeys the voice of the one who created him and comes out of the tomb. The same voice that, according to Hebrews 1, spoke the world into existence. The voice that we saw back in John 3 was greater than that of John the Baptist. Speaks the word and the dead man obeys. Such power and authority just in the voice. Uh, John Gill says this, and at first I kind of snickered at it, but he says Jesus called Lazarus by name just because there was other people in the tomb and he didn't want them to be raised as well. There's power in that voice. And at first I thought, that's kind of nuts. But then I remembered this really strange little account in Matthew 27. Jesus lifts up his voice on the cross and gives up his spirit. And what's the kind of indirect effect? A bunch of people were raised from the dead. I'm going to leave that for you to look at in Matthew 27. You decide what you think's going on there. But it's just interesting that Jesus calls him by name. That's going to have significance as we look at the end today. And so we've come to the end of the passage. We've seen Jesus be patient and prove his love. We've seen him stirred in his spirit because of the distrust of these people. And instead of lashing out and rebuking them, he simply proves who he is. So there's two very important things that I think we can take away this morning. First of all, I'm going to start backwards and work through. First of all, as we just said, this passage shows us the successful nature of Jesus' intercession for his people. He prays for you. He prays for your faith. And God always hears him. Secondly, we see that Jesus Christ is the only one who possesses the power, the authority, the divine right to take a dead man and give him new life. As we come to the end of the passage, we, we have to make this connection. This is not about Lazarus only. We've said this all the way through John. All these signs, all these miracles, all the things that Jesus did to prove himself was not about the physical circumstance. It wasn't about feeding the people. It wasn't about giving sight to the man. It was about showing that he could provide all your needs. It was about showing that he gives you new eyes to see. And the same thing with Lazarus. The spiritual application for us is this. Ephesians 2 Paul says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Doing whatever you want. Following the prince of the power of the air. And what happened? Why are you a Christian right now? Why are you here? 
What impulse is in you that you'd want to come to church on a Sunday morning? It's because of what Jesus did to Lazarus. He illustrated that he has the power to take a dead man, which all of us were, dead in our sins, and raise us up with Christ. God does that work. You didn't do that work, in case you didn't know that. That is not your work. We do not have the ability to roll the stone away, raise ourselves from the spiritually dead, and walk out of the tomb. Christ has that power. And he illustrates it powerfully with Lazarus. The point was not to give Lazarus a lease on life. He died again. Yeah, it was great to get raised, but he died. So it can't just be about the physical part. It's the spiritual reality. And the thing is, every one of us deal with that spiritual reality and know people who deal with that spiritual reality. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. I'm going to turn to Ephesians 2 and read that because that is such a good way to end this message, I think. If you want to turn there, you can read. I'm just going to read the first couple verses of Ephesians 2 or you can listen along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. That's all of us. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead like Lazarus was. Even then, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. There is no better way to close this message than to tell you that there is hope for the dead soul and it is not you. It is the person and the work of Jesus Christ illustrated in this passage in John with raising Lazarus from the dead. So as we go from here today, take this with you. Go in the power of the Spirit of God that raised you from the dead and let that power overflow out of you through love and good works to one another because of what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Lord, we were all hopelessly dead in our sins. And maybe some of us still are. I do not assume that everyone here has been born again. But Father, the hope that everyone has is the same hope that you give and that is that you alone have the power to raise the dead. So would you give us confidence, Lord, that if you raised us from the dead, that we have confidence that you will hear us when we pray, we can boldly approach your throne and for those, Lord, who do not yet know your saving grace, I pray in Jesus' name that right now your Holy Spirit would work upon their heart and soften them and open their eyes to the glory of the risen Christ. We thank you for your work on the cross, Jesus. 
We thank you for the demonstration of your power. And we thank you for the grace that made it available to a sinner like me. Thank you. Pray that you'd go with us now, Lord, and give us strength to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's take a couple minutes. Let the pastor.